Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, everyone. This is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited to be with you today. Today, we have a very incredible guest, and I can't wait to introduce you to her or for you to hear her remarkable story. I hope that you got a chance to listen to our history-making Black women, Jasmine and Ivy, who own the amazing crystal mine called Because I Rock. They are the first Black women in America to own a crystal mine. So you got to hear a historic conversation real time and probably for the first time. And not only are they the first Black women to own a crystal mine, but it was owned by Tiffany and Company. I mean, whoa. And when you hear their story and how they acquired the mine, yes, I said acquired, And here are two women who are big in the industry. Jasmine is a former basketball player and philanthropist. And Ivy is a celebrity florist who has worked with Will Smith, Miley Cyrus, Kim Kardashian, all the people as their personal florist. And they came together during the great, I call it the great pause, and an adventure ensued. And you really want to go back and hear that story. Not only is it amazing, but is the power of faith and receiving. Something that we as Black women must learn. Not we have our faith, but the power of receiving and saying yes to the opportunities that come in front of us. So make sure you check them out. And don't forget to share, rate, review the podcast on your favorite podcast, wherever you're listening to me now. Follow us on Spotify, follow us on Apple Podcasts, all the places where we are. Because as you know, you are my warriors out in the field letting the world know about Black Women Amplified. And I appreciate all of your support. All of it, all of it, all of it. Okay, let me slow it down and let me breathe. Because today we're talking with a legendary woman. Yes, we are. And I'm telling you, she was incredible to talk to. A joy. And I find myself when I'm in these conversations that I vacillate between being a the host and the, the interviewer with being in awe of what people are telling me. <laughs> so I'm trying not to like geek out like, oh my God, that's amazing. Because you know, I celebrate everybody. I'm like, I'm like the celebrator of all the people. But in talking to her, I was like, wow. And then I was like, wow, I've like the world should know who you are. And that's how I feel about everybody that's on the podcast. The world should know who you are. And so anyway, let me get into this conversation. Since her debut on EMI Records in 1992, Wendy Moulton has been the voice that transcends genres, continents, and generations. She has graced stages across the world, opening with performers who are legendary in their own right, including Julio Iglesias, Michael Bolton, Michael McDonald, Kirk Whalem, Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, Vince Gill, and her dear friend, 
Martina McBride. In 2020, when the world went on pause and the stages shut down, Wendy stepped up and auditioned for The Voice, completing its 21st season as runner-up with Blake Shelton as her team captain. With all of her successes, Wendy remains grounded in her faith and her gifts, understanding that the rain may come, but in order to shine, don't give up on yourself or your dreams. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the incomparable Wendy Moten. Hello, Miss Wendy. Thank you for coming on the Black Women Amplify podcast. I am so excited that you're here and to have this conversation with you. You are a master at what you do, and you have been in this game for a long time. So I'm curious to hear your stories about your life, your music, and your career. So how are you today? I'm doing very well, and thank you so much for having me and, you know, giving me this platform to share my story. Maybe it'll encourage somebody. Listen, I was doing research on you. The first question I have to ask that has nothing to do with anything is, was Donnie Simpson your first professional interview? Yes, he was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And he was the king of all of that. Yes. He was the king of all of that. And he was my first real interview, you know, on that kind of magnitude, you know, that was nationwide, international. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was number one, the first one. Did it look like it? Did it look like it? You did well, but I could tell. But here's the piece. My thing was, she out the gate is sitting on Donnie Simpson's couch. (laughs) Who does that? That's amazing. I was, you know, but you know, and I was so green that I didn't even know to be scared, you know, because I've been doing it my whole life. Yeah. So in that interview, I was, of course, happy to be in his presence. And I knew he was a gentleman. And so... I was just like, try to stay calm, Wendy Moten. Try to stay calm. You were very calm. You were very composed and very sophisticated. Thank you. And because uh, that's what I was like, is this her first one? Because, you know, you know the game much better than I do. You, know, you got to do the local stuff. You got to go to the farm. You, <laughs> you have to do all the things. I'm like, out the gate. <laughs> She's at the uh, couch. <laughs> I was so happy about that moment. I really was. Now, listening to your music, now you have your own distinct sound. In the 90s, you were always compared to Whitney Houston. How did it feel to be in her lane and have to navigate through that whole process? Well, I would have to say, you know, it was a plus because she was on such a high level that if they thought about me when they thought about Whitney or vice versa, okay, well, then that means I'm on the highest of levels available at that time. And I did do the work, you know, there's singers, there's eras for singers. And so Whitney Houston, that was my era. We listened to the same music growing up. That's why we had the same type of influences and same tonality. Because she listened to the same people I listened to. Dionne Warwick, Barbara Streisand, mm-hmm. you know, Aretha Franklin. So we, of course, we both had that gift. And, you know, it didn't bother me at all. And people like to have some something they can reference you to when you're new. They don't know how to define you. And I thought it was great. I'm like, okay, well, at that point, I'm at the highest of levels. So you want to put me with it? Great. Thank you. I did the work. Yes, you did. Sitting on Donnie Simpson's couch. (laughs) I love that your music is 
all you do all genres. But I want to ask you, little Wendy, the little girl growing up in Tennessee, what other dreams did she have? Or was music always your dream? No, I was terrified to be in front of people. But my dad was a pastor, a minister. And, you know, I had five other siblings and we had to be at church four days a week. So there was no downtime. And I was terrified. So I had to start leading songs at eight years old. And I did want to, but, you know, it's just easier just to go ahead and do it. But as I got older, I never thought that I would be a professional singer because everybody in my family sang and all my friends were singers. I'm from Memphis. So it was singers everywhere. And I just knew they all sounded better than I did. So I just never saw Wendy, the adult ever becoming a professional singer. That just, I didn't see that as little Wendy. And, you know, I was fanatic with television. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought I was going to be corporate attorney because I like (laughs) to go. So I thought I was going to go into law and that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure you put in some fierce negotiations for your contracts. <laughs> oh, I, I know how to negotiate and I know how to defend myself and at least ask the hard questions, you know. Yes. And so, yeah, that's where that debate comes in. So with you being in so many genres of music from Latin to jazz to R&B, funk, soul, blues, was that a conscious decision not to stay in, to, stay in one lane? No, it just, you know, it was just that way. I grew up in an era where you had like eight or nine television channels. So if you're going to watch TV, you're going to watch Lawrence Welk. You're also going to watch Hee Haw and you're going to watch Soul Train. You're going to watch Carol Burnett and the Flip Wilson Show and Midnight Special. And that's all you got. So you're going to watch those TV shows. And so all those shows where I was influenced by all those shows. When I would watch Lawrence Welk, I was like, what is, what is this show? And people don't know, check it out. It's a, a guy and people are dancing and he's playing the accordion. And it was so interesting that these people were dancing. And then these harmonies that these singers were singing. I'm like, what kind of harmonies? What is mm-hmm. that? I was eight, seven years old. Polka music, that? honey. <laughs> Polka? Yeah. Polka? And I didn't know what it was, but those harmonies caught my attention, mm-hmm. the tonality of the singers, because I already had the gospel in my life and Aretha was my, it still is my number one. So I had that. And they were so far from Aretha that I was like, what is that? But I love that tone. And I got that in my ears. And then all those other instrumentations, they got into me too. And then I love, love television and movies. And so my love for music came from television, mm-hmm. not from listening to music. I'm child number five out of six. Child number four, she was truly the music lover and she brought everything home. She brought the gospel, the rock, the jazz, you know, everything. She brought everything home. And I heard a lot of stuff because my sister Mona was a a music lover and Mona was so much of a music lover. She was the type of fan that used to write into the magazines. Mm. That takes, (laughs) that takes time. Yes, it does. <laughs> she was the type of fan that would That's write commitment. That is commitment. You got to sit down, you got to write a letter, you got to put a stamp on the envelope, then you got to get it to the post office. So she was a teenager, and that's just who she was until this day. Mona has got to be 62, and Mona still makes, she still knows who all the artists are. You know, as far as new artists, old artists, she 
listens to music all day and all night, and she makes her own little mix tapes. Oh. And that's who she is. And so Mona brought a lot of stuff home. And so I would get it all around. So me, you know, deciding to like different genres, it really wasn't a choice. It was just there because I was, it was, I was influenced by it all. Now, deciding to sing at least four different genres didn't happen till later on in my career, in my forties, because the record business wants you to choose a lane. Mm -hmm. They don't want diversity. They just want you to choose a lane, stay in that lane, try to build on it. Well, that was always a little problematic for me. And even when it came down to my records, because I just loved so many different things. But now in my 50s, I'm like comfortable with, I realized I'm a Linda Ronstadt. Mm -hmm. She's singing in four different genres. That's who I am. And I call it the Wendy Moden genre. So I'll take you from... (laughs) The traditional country to Paul Simon to Stevie Wonder. And I like to take people on a musical journey. And in my and my original music has those influences too. So as a little girl, I didn't know that's what I was gonna do, but it's in me, and I feel like I perfected the genres that I do love and I make them believable because I stay close to the core of what they are whenever I switch up on genres. And you know, that just comes from watching TV as a young girl. So you love the the old black and white movies, the Doris Day movies and those types I of movies? Some, some, but it's just not all, but, you know. Well, the music, I, I should say, the, the dramatics of it all. The dramatics of it all. It was, like, it was just the movies that were out there. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have what we have then. If you're going to watch TV, it's probably a movie that was from the 40s or 50s, mm-hmm. maybe the 60s. I was glad when the 60s and 70s, when they started making movies in the 70s, <laughs> <laughs> like Isaac Hayes doing the soundtrack and Quincy Jones. Then you start hearing other things, right? mainstream. But those other influences from the early TV, it was the music that got me. It helped. It was my first ear training, just like singing at church was my first ear training. Then all those types of sounds, they I, I kept them in a memory bank, obviously. And I get a chance to play around with all that now. And, you know, but I also had my foundation. Like Aretha Franklin will always be my number one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up in Memphis, they didn't care what color you was. But if you couldn't sing Aretha Franklin songs, you <laughs> that was just it. <laughs> You can't sing. If you can't sing Aretha, then you are not a great singer. <laughs> so, you know, that was the marker growing up. That's what I tell the kids because I grew I'm, uh, grew up in St. Louis. I'm in St. Louis. Yes. And so we listened to everything. Yes. I was singing Dolly Parton just as much as I was singing hip or reciting hip hop. There wasn't a distinction of this is this type of music or this is. We had everything. It was the best. <laughs> yes. It was the best because it opened you up to mm-hmm. many things. And then you choose what you want to keep and what you want to get rid of. And you were exposed to different cultures. I mean, he all was, was like, what is that? But you, I loved it. So <laughs> it how was I, funny I, to me. <laughs> and that was the goal. Because what it did, what I explained to people, now that you know I've infiltrated country music in my mid-50s as a middle-aged Black woman, I infiltrated country music. That's the name of your I, book. That's the name of your book. <laughs> I infiltrated country music yes. middle aged black yes. woman. <laughs> and well, that'll be, I, you know, that's something to think about. It's expressed to them that during that time when Hee Haw and Soul Train, all those things were born, it was a safe place to 
witness other cultures in the safety of your home. So you could see, oh my gosh, that, you know, the black guy down the corner, oh, there are other black people in the world and they look <laughs> like they do this. Mm-hmm. Oh, country world. They open up the hee out. We have a sense of humor. Oh, really? We're all, oh, yeah. And we have really great music too. Mm-hmm. So we learned from each other in the safety of our homes because that was the only way to do it because we were all segregated. Very much segregated, (laughs) very much segregated. So in your career, what came first, your opportunity with Michael Bolton or your record deal? My record deal came first and uh, uh, in the 92, really 1993, in the early days of 1993. And my first single was released in 1993. And I got the Michael Bolton tour in 1994 when I was his opening act, when he was uh, touring, uh, playing in arenas and I have to tell you the story. It was between Regina Bell and myself to open up for Michael Bolton. And Michael, I know we hadn't talked to each other in years, but I know you chose me because nobody knew me. <laughs> oh. But that's okay. It was an up-and-coming artist, and Regina Bell was a star already. Yes. She was already had hits. and But it was good for me, and I still got standing ovations every night. Oh, snap, snap, snap. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta claim it. (laughs) No, it happened. It was a fact. So you you get your record deal, and then you're on the stage with Michael Bolton going to arenas, and you uh, charmed life. (laughs) I also had a great manager, Dick Williams, uh, who found me. He used to be head of marketing and promotion at Warner Brothers on the West Coast for many, many years. And then when he was retired, we were ready to retire. He wanted to manage artists. So he came to Memphis to talk to this band about managing them and getting them a record deal at Warner Brothers. And he happened to stop in this studio in Memphis and I was singing a a local commercial. I hadn't done hardly anything. I was in college and I was singing this commercial. He was like, hey, who's that girl? And what does she sound like with a band? And the guy was like, I don't know. I just hired her for commercials. And uh, But the guy had a band. His name was Nico Laris and he had a band called uh, Come In Berlin. And so he was like, I'm in town for a couple of days do you mind sitting in with this band? And I said, no, at that time, saving all my love for you was out and Aretha's who's zooming who and greatest love of all. Mm. So I sang those three songs and he was like, I think I can get your record deal. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Cause I'm like, that's so far from where I think I'm going. And, and sure enough, a couple of months later, he's like, I'm coming, you know, he came back to Memphis coming in out of the rain, which was my single. And he had two other songs from this songwriter, Curtis Boone out of Detroit and he's like, uh, uh, let's cut these three songs and I think I can get you a record deal. I said, no problem. I'm not signing anything, but we can try this because I knew I wasn't signing no contracts. I had heard about the music business and we'll see if you can give me a record deal. If you give me a record deal, I'll sign the contract. That's where the lawyer wannabe came right. in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no problem, no problem. I believe in what I can do. I said, no problem. And sure enough, he came like three months later, we did the songs and literally two or three months later, he had a bidding war going on between Warner Brothers, Elektra and uh, EMI Records. And we ended up going to EMI Records and, you know, that started all. Of course, I had to sign a contract at that point, but he taught me the music business. And so I learned the business from him. He never did anything behind my back or you know, where I had to wonder what was going to happen with my life. No, he put everything out in the open, which I really appreciate. And 
he's retired now, but you know, I still talk to him about different things. So you have seen the mini evolution or devolution, I'd say, of the record <laughs> industry. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Because nobody's getting a deal anymore. <laughs> People are having to sell off their catalogs just to make any money anymore. How are you navigating? How did you, and I have a whole lot of questions in between this, but since we're here, how are you navigating from where you are now to what you knew then? Well, then I had help, which was Dick Williams, and he wanted to protect me. And so we made decisions together. The industry was still what it was. And because I was a part of it in the mid 90s, the late 90s, it had ended as far as artist development, as far as record companies really investing in artists. And then I think rap or hip hop was becoming king. And so our style of singing, that part of the music industry was dying in the 90s, 98, 99. So I've been able to, when all when I, my record deal was over, I had to decide if I was going to stay in the game or not, because the music business had changed and the big ballad singer was not as important. And they had the biggest queens, which was Whitney, Celine and Mariah. So, you know, like I said, I was always number four, but number four don't get nothing, but (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, self-therapy helps too. But, um, (laughs) you know, I realized uh, Julio Iglesias found me in that time and that transition of pop R and B ending and, you know, figuring out what I was going to be. And then the labels weren't as interested anymore in the late nineties because the music had changed and they had the top three biggest selling vocalists ever. And they were happy and content. So I was like, what am I going to do? And then Julio Iglesias found me and asked me to be his duet partner and I said, I'll stay for a year because he's a living legend. I'll, I can learn something. I figured I'll stay for a year. And I ended up staying 15 years because I, I didn't know how to get back to the front. I didn't know how to become a solo artist anymore. And I made crazy money. And I was learning how to be a better singer and artist because I'm like one of the greatest in the world. And I felt like I was getting paid to learn. So uh, he shared his homes and planes and that whole unrealistic lifestyle. I did all that, you know, all that beautiful. Okay. So now I want to know the juice. Yeah. Where'd you go? Who'd you meet? What'd you do? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, we met, I mean, we performed for a lot of presidents and prime ministers of countries. And so history, all of them. I mean, even like Putin, I was at the Kremlin like three times. You know, uh, Syria, Serbia, Kazakhstan, Kazan, London, you know, Africa, right after apartheid, you know. So and just I've been I'm one of the few people, maybe three to five percent that has seen the whole world multiple times. Mm -hmm. And I got paid to do it. And I went to all of the museums, every country I would go to. I would go to the museums and, you know, read up on the culture, try the food and the wine and the people. And I love history. And so with Julio, I had to sing in four languages, but I had to just sing, learn them phonetically. Of course, I had English, but I don't speak Spanish, Portuguese, or French. But he recorded in four to five languages. That's why he was one of the top-selling artists in music history, right there with Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Everybody else in their early days had pockets of success. 
this country or that country. But Julio and Elvis and the Beatles were everywhere when there wasn't, when it used to take six months for new music to circulate. So here I am with one of the greatest singers in music history, getting paid to learn how to be a great artist. And he taught me how to be a great singer and performer. And he knew my strength better than I did. And I didn't think I would stay 15 years, but I didn't know what I wanted to do or how I was going to get back out there. So I figured I'll just continue to learn, continue to see the world and and grow. And I did that until it ended. And then country music world opened up and I started touring with country music artists like Faith Hill, Tim McGraw, their big arena tours as their background singer. And, you know, I did a lot of sessions and I, I look at it like this. All the people that I tour with, I was anonymous enough to pull it off because had I been too big of an artist, it just wouldn't have worked. But I was anonymous enough. They knew where I came from. But if I said yes to the gig, I'm there as your background singer. I understand what it's like to be out front. You're going to get a lot more sympathy and empathy from me. And and I get it. It's hard being out front. But I said, if I'm going to be a background singer, I got to be a background singer to the stars till I can figure out how to be back out front. And only my work ethic and, you know, when I would negotiate for fees and everything, I would talk to the artist. I don't want a middle person. And I know that's right. I'm not talking to your people. (laughs) I don't mind it, but I need to have a true understanding of who you think you're hiring. Yes. And I'm going to give a hundred percent and I'm going to, and I'm not out here behind you dreaming of other things. I'm not, you know, I'm here. If I say yes to the gig, I'm here for your dream. That's it. And I, my good friend, Martina McBride, when I was touring with her, I didn't tell her my past. I never talk about my past because you're hired as a background singer. So she said, but it was something different about you. I don't know what it was. And she started doing research and she was like, you're not like a Whitney Houston. I said, well, you know what? I need your money to pay for my dreams right now. Mm. Deal. Deal. Because if I didn't need to do that, I wouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so I said yes to a lot of gigs and I said no to a lot of gigs. And, you know, that just kept me going until COVID shut everything down. And when COVID shut everything down, I said, this is my way back because everybody was afraid about how they were going to make it. The stars were afraid. How are we going to make this work? Mm-hmm. Entertainment was a luxury. It's not a necessity. And so I said, well, here's my way back. Here's my way back. And everybody got to start over a little bit. And I said, I need TV. What can I do as a middle-aged Black woman to get out there again? Because they don't care how great you sound. The industry wants 10-year-olds who are amazing. And then that's what made me decide to go on The Voice. Now, did you ever consider going overseas? Because like, I know the Pointer Sisters had a residency in Singapore, and I know singers that have had have great careers outside of this country because this country is so specific in what they want. Was that ever a consideration for you? Oh, yeah. But I was already kind of touring. And, you know, I had big Asian markets and some European markets that were big for me. And then it ended because my era of music ended. Okay. You know, so that ended... However, I want to entertain those things again because I know that I have a classic voice and not many there. Of course, there's millions of classic singers. But as far as the stars are concerned, they're either no longer with us or not doing it anymore. So I'm like the girl that, you know, your budget can't afford Mariah Carey at a million, two or three million for the night. I'm the other girl. I can take 800. (laughs) I'm the other girl. Okay. 
So that's where I see myself right now, on a realistic <laughs> level. So when you were on tour with these amazing people, Michael Bolton, I can't, I'm, I can't get my words Michael together. Michael McDonald. Michael McDonald. Yes. What in, oh, I got a Kirk Whalen story for you, but how were you able to, because you're a very confident and strong person, I can tell, even though you didn't, you know, didn't fathom being the, the entertainer that you are, how were you able to put all that aside to stand by somebody every night and support their dreams? Like what it is, is it in you? Is it something you had to learn or you already knew that once you made a decision, I'm just moving forward with it? Well, first of all, I need to make a living. Yeah. Well, and after that, I still didn't know who I was as an artist. So here I have these opportunities to learn from other artists. And you can learn because you close you with them every day. You're breaking bread. You're traveling. And what I recognized was that they were suffering with the same things I was. How did the show go tonight? Was I good? Do I have enough to do it? You know, all the, I was scared, you know, all the regular stuff. Once I saw that they have the same concerns, I was like, oh, oh okay. They're just humans, which right. I knew, but you don't know till you see it. And you see that they also have self-doubt and they want to work on their craft and they want to be great. And I've been fortunate to work with really great artists who really work hard and they appreciate the people that they are surrounded by. So witnessing that and experiencing that, if I knew who I was back then, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I still was trying to work out who I am as an artist. What did I want to sing? What is it that I want to say to the people? Well, you know what? I'll go and work with this artist till I can figure this out. Because and why not have the classroom be the king of so-and-so and such and such? Yes. <laughs> That's the best. Why am I going to learn it if I ain't in it? Right. You know? And so you got to be in it because what it did was it helped me define what I really want out of my career and what I don't. Stuff like, you know, do I need to have billions of followers? Maybe not. Do I need to own a private plane and all the expense that goes with that? What I decided was not really. Now they got a whole lot of private companies out there that you just got to have a private plane, but you don't need the three to four, $5 million maintenance every year for a plane. Mm -hmm. So that's just stuff that I just feel like, okay, I don't, I don't really need that. It's cool to have because I was living with it for 15 years and somebody else was covering it. And I was like, this is cool, and but I don't need that. So it helped me define what I really want and what I don't need. So what is it you really want right now? I want my own, I want my career. I want to be known as one of the greatest singers in the world because I did the work. I want to always be encouraging and always grow musically. And my purpose is that when I sing, that it's uh, like my ministry. It's not Christian, but the goal is to reach the spirit and reach the soul and make them feel something they haven't felt before. And I, and we get that from our favorite singers and um, artists that we listen to. We listen to them because they make us feel something. And whether it's joy or to make you feel like you can keep going on, I've always wanted to be able to be one of those type artists. Now I am. And I know. And what Julio taught me was he knew I was a balladeer. So I like to sing ballads, no matter what genre. And the goal is to make the room go silent. Mm. The room mm -hmm. goes quiet. And I've reached them. And the other thing is, 
I want to speak to spirit. But the other thing is I want them to be thinking in their own thoughts. I'm just amused. I'm just, yeah, I got a gift. What to do? I got a gift. But if I can make you, if I can put a smile on your face, if I could, I just did a concert in Franklin Theater in Franklin, Tennessee. And this big time producer, Paul Worley, he was a big record company guy and he was in the audience and he said, you know, you just made me cry. My wife was crying. That's what I want to do. I want to go right into that spirit where I create joy. I create a moment where it makes you just tear up. And that's my job. So, and, and what I learned from Julio the most is I don't sing any song that don't move me. Growing up as a young artist, I got tons of records of songs I didn't connect to because I didn't know that. I just sang them pretty, they're pretty. But I had no connection to the song. So now I don't do that because it is like a ministry for me. I do want to reach the spirit. When I decided to go on The Voice, that's what I said. I said, I don't know how long this game going to go. I don't even know what this game is. But I'm going to leave my ego at the house. And I want to go in there and I want to reach people through that television and have them feel something that they can't even articulate. Mm -hmm. But it's something... And I had so many people reach out to say, you know, you made me cry or this. And now I don't want to make them cry. I just want to know that I've touched them. I got it. I, it worked. Well, and you unlock something. Yes. You unlock something. Because I think in this era that we're in, that is really strange. <laughs> people are very tense and yes. very and guarded. I don't want to be fake. Mm-hmm. Be fake. It needs to be real. Yeah. And, and you no unlock something when you sing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's my purpose. And I know how to do it consistently. Mm-hmm. And, and it was because of, you know, the gift that I had. I had great parents too. And working with all these great artists, I saw everything I needed to see. Mm-hmm. I saw everything to help me define who I want to be or who I am. You know, I've been to the top, you know. God, and- God showed you what it looked like. And now he's saying, go get it. Yeah, go get <laughs> what you want. Because I, I got right. a prime example. I have this photo of my first time I ever been to a cabin, a law, I'm not a law cabin, but a cabin. My my nephew graduated from college and he was like, I want the whole family to go to, uh, you know, have a cabin retreat. I'm like, I don't do no cabins, but okay. I went in, in Gatlinburg and we had this big cabin. We had about 14 family members and it was like four floors. And what I saw, it was so beautiful. I saw the sky, the top of the mountain, the highest part of the trees. And I saw below me and I said, that's what my career is because you know, at the top of the mountain is lonely. It can be cold mm-hmm. at the bottom is a lot of dirt down there and there's insects you got to fight with, but to have that whole view of everything, that's what my career is. I can see the sky, the mountain, the tip top of the mountain in the middle there. I can see the top of the trees, the middle of the trees, the bottom, all the way down to the ground. So that's my outlook on my life, my career. I'd rather have that view. And there's more beauty there. There's more beauty, more appreciation. And more community. More community. Now, before we get into the voice, because I do want to hear about that story. You grew up in Tennessee, the South, in the midst of the civil rights movement. What memories do you have of that? And how did that impact you growing up? I don't have any members because I was born in 1964. Okay. Segregation, integration was ending. I think the Civil Rights Bill was signed in 65. So 
when i was born there was three bills between 65 and 68 Mm -hmm. okay so all i've known is integration that's all i've known so being in memphis another plus i had was my uncle my mother's brother was one of the pastors at ben hook's church so i ended up going to kindergarten at ben hook's church and ben hooks created you know the naacp he created ben hooks And so my uncle was a pastor at his church and I went to kindergarten there. I was a, uh, they tried these different little tests with all kinds of cool. There used to be this show called Rumper Room. Yes, girl. Yes. (laughs) I was on Rumper Room from the Memphis. What? Yeah. Because they had LA, New York, Mm -hmm. Chicago, and I think Memphis. Mm -hmm. And I was... In Rumper Room, they put us with all these different type children, all the different races to see how we would interact. And every, you know, I didn't find out till I got older that Miss Betty, that was just the characters. It was Miss Betty in Chicago, Miss Betty in New York City. <laughs> and that was Miss Betty. I thought, you know, so I was a part of that, you know. I also was a part of during that time, they decided if your birthday was late, if your birthday was November, that they held you back a year. Mm-hmm. Because they feel like you would be more mature when we go to school and you'd be more independent. That was true. I was more independent. I was and always been, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've been the test of a lot of situations and changes that they were trying to create during those times. But integration is all I've known. I know there's racism out here, don't get me wrong, but I didn't have to live through segregation. My siblings did. Mm-hmm. And you know, they don't tell too many stories, but our parents were realist. And so we didn't act like it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we dealt with reality every day. Yeah, I was the same as you. I was the one of the first black kids to go into the integration, mm-hmm. going to the white school. So I don't know what it's like to be separated like that. And I've heard the stories of my uncles and my aunts and, you know, my older cousins. But my first school... <laughs> With no. the white kids. <laughs> well, you know, my I didn't get bust. My elementary schools were black in the black neighborhood. Oh, okay. Okay. And I didn't get until I got bust to junior high school that mm-hmm. I become integrated. I mean, you know, what we would because but I mean, I would have to say that our education systems when it was all black was strong. Yeah. I mean, we got educated, you know, yes. we got nurtured. You all were taught by scholars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so I, my elementary school was a black school. And I remember we grew up across the street from this huge park. It was called Glenview Park. And it was so beautiful and well-maintained. I used to think we owned the park because I was playing there every day. My dad <laughs> owned the park. We, technically, we paid taxes. But, but just growing up with a huge park, a big house, and a big backyard with a big acorn tree, I guess, yeah, pecan tree, mm-hmm. all that helped with development. And my parents had to be strong because they did integrate into a white neighborhood. And that park was prime real estate. And, but, you know, because Benjamin Hooks was in Memphis and, and the CP was created there, then, you know, they were just like, okay, we're, we're going to get rid of these lines. And so it, it took my, my parents to be, to be courageous, to mm-hmm. go do that to do that. And they did. And, you know, cause they used to live in, in the projects with four little kids. Oh, wow. Okay. They lived in the projects with four little kids 
And they still made it happen. But even in the projects, people used to take care of each other. Yes, it was community. It wasn't yeah. like it is now. It wasn't crime. About we got each other, we got to watch each other's back. So them take them decide, okay, we're gonna go get this house because we can, and they open up things where we can. And we, you know, I grew up in let me say one, two, three, five bedroom house with upstairs and two bathrooms. That's how I grew up <laughs> across the street from the park. That's all I know. Big stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little princess in this house. <laughs> no, no, not even. Not even. Oh, there was no princess in our house. My mom was like, not having it. I know. So, I'm just saying it's like when you think, when you look at the vision of what the perception of what people think we grew up like yes. and the reality of how we grew up is vastly different. You know, we had accountability we had to deal with and our house was also the house. Cause my dad was such a unique man and my mom too. He, you know, wasn't afraid to show affections to men and comfort people. Cause he was a pastor. Mm-hmm. So he prayed for people, you know, it'd be guys in the neighborhood. I didn't find out for years, but like, we're more you got like $20 and he just give it to him. We didn't have money. We weren't rich, but he felt like, you know what? They needed more than I do. He didn't talk to nobody about it. He just did it. Mm-hmm. You know, our house was the house that people would just come to get love, to come just to exhale for a minute, to come when, you know, they don't get along with their parents or, you know, you just feel like our house was that house that you hang out with. Your, the kids hung out at Grown people hung out. I mean, we were just that house where people could exhale. Mm. It was hard. It was still hard during the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And that's you, that's, are, that's you all created the space for them to breathe. That's beautiful. And now you create the same thing with your music. <laughs> so tell us about your decision to go on to The Voice. You had this amazing career, and now you're on a huge platform again called The Voice. Tell us about that journey. Well, COVID shut everything down and changed everybody's life. Mm-hmm. And what you thought you had, you didn't have no more. And we didn't know what was going to happen when everything started, you know, coming back to life. So, uh, but I knew it. I saw it as an opportunity. I said, okay, this is a great opportunity to revamp my solo career. And then I said, how are, I asked myself, how are you going to do it? And I said, I need TV. And I asked myself, what? kind of television can you stomach at your age? Because we're in a society where you share and you tell everything. And I'm from the era that you don't share anything and whatever you do, don't boast and talk about yourself. Mm-hmm. So I was like, what can you stomach and do your ultimate best? I said, okay, I can do the voice because at least they take singers seriously. And the goal was to stay, get there and stay as long as I could. And with the hopes of getting a lot of visibility so I could get booked as a solo artist. Mm. That was how I was going to start my solo career. And I- That's that lawyer thinking again. (laughs) Don't do it, man. (laughs) And so I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my guy, David Santos, who I've been with for 27 years. I didn't tell him I was making a video. Now, wait a minute. No, no, I I couldn't because he was going to be worried. Like he's when he did find out, he said those same words. What are you doing? These people can't teach you anything. You know more than all those people. And I knew, but I knew it was the only thing I had. So I said, I'm going to send a video in. I ain't going to tell nobody. And if they reject me, no one would know. And I can still live with myself. <laughs> or, you know, reject me because I had too much experience, you know. 
But if they take me, then I know that this is the path I need to be on. So, and I did it just catacall like everybody else. I sent the video in from my home. And, you know, I didn't tell nobody. And then like a month later, they reached out. He's like, hey, we, we, we want you to come out to L.A. We'll let you know something in a couple of months. I said, OK, but we want you to come. I'm like, great. I still hadn't told anybody. Finally, I told David and he was like, honey, you don't need to do that. What are they going to teach? I'm like, honey, I got nothing because I'm going to tell you something. When they wrote me back and they said, we want you to come to L.A., give us a few months. I said, OK, I had a dream. My sister said it was a vision. And in this dream, I was in a pitch black desert, nothing on either side of me and nothing behind me, pitch black in a desert. But in front of me was this huge white building, had white neon lights, and it had the voice, little mic and two fingers thing. And the voice that I heard said, if you have the courage to keep walking this way and walk through those doors, everything going to be all right. Mm-hmm. My sister said that was a vision. I said, okay. So I said, It's all I got. There was nothing to distract me on either side. And there was nothing behind me. Pitch black. So it was a no brainer. But it said, if you have the courage to keep walking that way. And mind you, I was begging for a tour to pull up. Anything in this video. (laughs) Stop me. I'm doing this. Because I don't know if this is the right move to make. Because it's reality TV. I don't know if I'm made for reality TV. That's what I kept thinking. So literally... Three days before it's time for me to get on a flight. I still hadn't told my family. David knows. Haven't told my family. And I'm in the fetal position and I'm crying myself to sleep. I'm so terrified, wondering if I had made the right choice. Are they going to destroy the 35 years I built? Is this going to harm me in any kind of way? And I was so terrified that my sister in Memphis, Debbie, she called the next day and she said, what is going on? I felt you all night, but I figured you were all right because David was at home and he would have called me if there was an emergency. I said, I'm going to the voice and I'm leaving in three days. (laughs) And she was like, you have to let us know about that kind of stuff and you're going to do fine. And she prayed for me, but she felt that fear all the way in Memphis. That's a three hour drive. You know, you're in St. Louis. That's a three hour drive. And I told myself, I wanted to remind, I wanted to remember the fear I had. I want to remember how scared I was when I took that leap. Mm. I want to remember it. And so I shared it with everybody. I shared that story because that's that happened. And then I went on and three days later, I was landing in LA. And I said, I'm going to leave my ego at home and I'm just going to concentrate on the challenge of the week because I'm a nice person. Anyway, I ain't worried about that. But I also (laughs) didn't want to get of myself. And, you know, just this is a a new reality and you just learn from it like you have everything else. And the goal was to encourage others there and encourage myself and and just be an encouragement, really. And I'm sure you brought a level of professionalism they had not seen Oh, totally. And I'm not the only, you're right. Go ahead. But I mean, the level, yeah, you're, I mean, it's not like CeeLo was next, you know, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? You were with people who have probably had great careers, but the level of career you had, the integrity that you have as an artist is something not necessarily the people there, but the world has not seen. And the kids have definitely not seen it unless they're still watching Michael Jackson videos. Exactly. But when I what I knew was I wasn't the only artist that had been there. There had been other artists there. So mm-hmm. I, I knew that. 
but I knew that a lot of them hadn't had all the stuff that I've had. I know I had more than most people and I'm going to be, you know, professional anyway. So I was professional with the crew and the producers and they all saw me as one of them because that's what I did for profession for 35 years. Mm -hmm. So I know how to treat the crew. I know how to treat everybody. I don't treat everybody anyway, but I went there to learn and I went there to be open and to do my ultimate best. And I felt like it worked out and, you know, you know, we'll go where you want to go from that part. Cause I, you know, you know about the fall. Yes. I have a question. Did you know Blake before you got to the voice? No, everyone thought I did. Because <laughs> you're deep in, I mean, Vince Gill and Martina McBride, you don't get much deeper than that. I, you know, <laughs> Blake doesn't live. He lived in LA and Oklahoma. Oh, okay. okay. So there was no, although we had same friends or associates, we never met. We never worked together. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know anything about me. And all throughout the show, he kept saying, my phone is burning up because of you. It's blowing up. My <laughs> people, my friends know you. I'm like, hey, I've been doing this a long time. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you should have said, welcome to my world. <laughs> you want to come meet my friends? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, was, he was loving that part of it. But no, we, we didn't know each other. Now, is this the experience that inspired your song, Don't Give Up? No, David and I, David Santos and I have been together 26 years now. We wrote it in 2009. And I think we were trying to encourage each other because he's a touring musician too. He played bass for Billy Joel, Crosby, Stills and Nash, John Fogarty, Melissa Etheridge, Toto, the Neville Brothers. And so he had been in the game a long time too. And we were working on like trying to write some soul music together because he's really a blues dude at heart, but he made his money playing rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And we wrote uh, Don't Give Up together. He did all the music and everything and some of the ver- you know lyrics. I came up with a few lyrics here and there. The second verse in particular is, a, is my verse because I was living it. So we wrote that song, but it wasn't ready to be heard yet. Mm-hmm. So I did the voice and then I was getting ready to work on some new music and we decided to cut that song. And hey, it made sense. So all the people who knew me from the 90s, my career in the 90s, and wondered where I was, they recognized I hadn't given up. And then with the voice people, mm-hmm. they saw me fall and break my elbow on the show in front of millions of people. And the next day I was on the set with two broken arms. So they saw me ride that out. Mm-hmm. And and so then when I went back to the voice this past May for Blake's send-off show, they could see that I was all right. But, and I released a song during that week so I could have something to talk about. And it's, it's a personal testimony that I'm living, you know? It's a beautiful song. I love it. It, it was very touching. And I have to say this, the cover, fly. Hair, <laughs> makeup, clothes. I said, 50 what? 50 who? Eight. Listen, you're having your renaissance. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Now, what does the star signify on your eye? Just something my makeup artist wanted to do. <laughs> I said, okay. You got to find a story. Fine, please find a story. <laughs> okay. Well, because she said that's how she sees me. Oh, That's how she sees me. So she wanted that to just be there without saying it out loud. Well, honey, you look amazing. You sound amazing. How does it feel now that you've been on all the big stages to be invited back to the iconic Birdland in New York City. First of all, the first time I was invited in May of 2022 was just a miracle. Mm. But there was a friend of mine who was a great musician. I can't think of his name right now. He's going to kill me. 
And he, it was a fluke. He plays there often. And I got to send you his name because it's driving me crazy. And he plays there often. And he saw everything that I had been doing. And he was like, I can't make this show. Would you like to play Birdland? I said, oh my goodness. Yes, I would. And he was like, well, will you be on tour or you be in New York? I'm like, oh, I will get myself to New York. Don't worry about that. To play Birdland. That was March. I mean, yeah, that was May 2022. And, and so that was the first time. And then they loved what I had to offer. And they gave me three dates that November, same year. So I performed there November 18, 1920 of 2022. And now they were like... Uh, Hey, it's time to come back to Birdland. I said, thank you so much. And I'm on my way. So uh, this August 21st, I'll be so thrilled to play there. And, you know, I've been independent. You know, I've been my own manager, my own agent, my own label. And when you have places like that that reach out and you don't have those other things in place, it's really a blessing. Well, it's a testament to who you are as a person, your integrity, your character. People remember, what did Maya Angelou say? People might not remember you, but they remember how you made them feel. I know I have it wrong. Nobody tweet me. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? But you make few, probably, I can imagine, just from our interaction, you make people feel seen. And people will always remember that. And that's what I bring to my shows. Because Mm -hmm. although I love having new music, I'm the queen of covers. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do I have? That's my strength. And that's my personality and my, what I make everybody feel seen and being a part of it. That's my gift. The last time I was there, not the, the first time I was there, somebody wrote a review of the show and they started off with, not only is she a great singer, but she's a great comedian. <laughs> I want to have everyone be engaged and feel, and then I'll sing something pretty. All right. And then we'll talk some more stuff and then I'll sing something else. And, and what's crazy is when I'm talking, I am comedic. Mm-hmm. But when I'm singing, I'm very serious. <laughs> very serious place because I consider myself the storyteller and I just want to tell the story where you have your own thoughts and you go away into your own space in your mind. Mm, that's beautiful. And it's beautiful that that's your intention because you make it about yes. the audience. And I'm sure that they feel it. So what is next for you? Well, I'm going to be in Detroit in the next week playing at the the Detroit Jazz Festival, which I'm looking forward to because I'm going to wear them out with all Aretha and Stevie Wonder. (laughs) Are you playing at the uh, Aretha Franklin Amphitheater? No, this is a jazz festival outside, the Detroit Jazz Festival. That's August 5th. And then I'm going to play New York this August the 21st. And then I got this big, huge jazz festival I'm playing at in December, and everybody's there. David Sanborn, Kirk Whale, Jeffrey Osborne. All, that's like in December. And in, in, it's working on new music and just trying to stay busy, you know. And I, it takes a lot of spokes to make my wheel. So I, I'll sing country music. Every Monday night, I'm in this uh, Grammy-winning Texas swing band. It's 10 of us. And I'm I'm there with three fiddle players. <laughs> And and we've seen traditional country music. I'll send you a photo. I and and I go and I'm not a fake country singer. I pay tribute to the country songs, and I go as close to country as I can without faking it. Okay. So and it makes the audience it's believable for the audience because they come there to sing to hear country music. So I go from country music to soul on any day or jazz, 
And that's that thing we've been talking about, how I like being a, a little bit of a comedian and a chameleon. <laughs> and I like to cross different genres because I can. Okay. <laughs> Get your hand off of your hip, lady. <laughs> you have to be aggressive, woman. Well, you know, I used to apologize for it. So no, I'm, I'm like, self-help and self-therapy helps. And I've worked through all this stuff in the last 30 years of who is Wendy Moe and what does she do? You know, it takes us a while to get to know ourselves. And then once we, if we're fortunate to find out before it's too late, then it's a beautiful thing. So now that I know who I am, I don't have to apologize and I can just say it out loud. Now, just before we go, I just wanted to ask you, you've said self-help a couple of times. And if you don't mind mentioning a couple of techniques or books that you read that can help other people who are going through that process of trying to discover who they are. I don't have any books. All I know is is that first voice. Mm -hmm. The second voice we compromise. It's the first one. The first one might not tell you what you want to hear, but I don't argue with that first voice anymore. I don't try to compromise voice too. And, you know, what I also realized was we got to live this life for ourselves. Literally, we've read stuff. People told us you got to love yourself first. It's so hard to do. It's so hard to do, but you got to do it. Because if you love yourself first and you know who, who you are and you've set up boundaries for yourself and for others, you will have a more fulfilled life. I stay with the truth every day. I prefer to tell the truth. I don't want to lie or embellish. If it's something I want to do, I'm just going to say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. I'm not the one for it. And it helped me. Telling the truth helps so much. Whether it comes down to the person you're in a relationship with, your job, your uh, family members, whatever it is, they know I want to tell the truth. And you might not like it. And I might not even want to hear it. But if that's the truth, that's what I'm going to go with. And ever since I've been just sticking up with the truth and saying what I mean and meaning what I say, my life has been more fulfilled. It's less stress. And I sleep at night. Amen. And that's Everything I do. <laughs> Amen that's to the sleep at night. <laughs> and it's hard. Don't get me wrong. I ain't making it seem like, because you wonder, am I making this? Is this going to hurt this? Or if I don't do right here, is that going to affect that? But, you know, you got to come down to you because you cannot help nobody else if you're not whole. Your children, your family, your job. Your neighbors, you can't help nobody if you're not whole. So you got to be whole and they need to know that what you say is what you mean. And that you hear that first verb, that first voice. The first voice is the answer. I told somebody uh, the other day, I, well, I got a couple of friends because we have to keep each other going when you're self-employed. You know, you, mm-hmm. you have highs and lows. On the lows, I don't do anything. I stay in bed. I watch TV. I don't even try to dream. On when it's feeling low. And I like I don't get low, but I do get low and I get stepped out. I just stand still. Peace be still. Because when it comes back up, that's when I start dreaming, planning. And that's just natural. So I got this saying, you know, for different friends who, you know, determine if they should take a gig or not, or if they should have somebody in their life or not. I tell them, if you got to ask, your ask, that's your answer, which means that's no. If you got to be like, do I really want to do this gig? That is your answer. That means no. Mm-hmm. Because the stuff that we know, that we know that we know, we say yes immediately. Mm-hmm. So if you got a question and if you got to ask, that is your answer. Mm. And that's a lot of time, a lot of pressure, a lot of self negotiation. 
all of that stuff that you go, it take you two weeks, three weeks to get to. I always felt that way. I shouldn't have even done it. Well, you knew then. If you got to ask yourself, then that is your answer. That means move on to something else and say no to that. She is preaching y'all and I am sucking all of this in. (laughs) It's two story. I'm living it every day, every day. Yes, because you said the things that you said yes to in your life, when you connect the dots, were the things that you were supposed to say yes to. And do you have lived this huge life because of just saying yes to that first voice? First voice or listening to the first voice says no. Or if that first voice makes you, if you got to question what the voice said, because you want to hear something else. If you got to ask if that's what you want to do, that's your answer. That means no, find something else. That means if you, because the stuff that you're sure about, you just going to do it. You don't ask, you know, that's what it is. Whether it's something you want to eat, whether it's something you want to go, if it's a movie you want to watch, you know, I'm I'm watching that. That's what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm watching it. And I'm a videotape because that's something you are sure about. You know, that's what you got to do when you live your life. And if you got to ask it, then that's your answer. That means no. Mm-mm. Well, Miss Wendy, you just wrote your next song. Okay, good. What is it? What's the title? If you got to ask, it's a no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. I'll be thinking about you, Monica. Thinking about you. I have to tell you, this has been, I told you from the, this was going to be a hot fire conversation. I loved every second of it, but I know you're recording and you're doing your thing and I want to honor your time, but I have one last question. And I think we have the answer to this. What is your black girl magic superpower? Being comfortable in my own skin. I know that's right. All the time. I know that's right. That's mine. That's it. Because if we can do that, we already got the darts coming at us everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. They, they, the bullets ain't never stopping. The darts, the all that. So it's like, you know, my superhero, I, I thank God I had a great mom. She was the quietest one in our family, but she was the strongest one. And hey, as long as I put on my armor, I can go on. And my armor is me knowing me. Amen. <laughs> How can people reach you? and hear more of your music and follow your career. Please add me to your list, your, uh, what they call them now, these uh, Spotify's and these uh, playlists, <laughs> you know, please add me there, Wendy Moten, W-E-N-D-Y-M-O-T-E-N. I'm on Instagram, I'm on all the social platforms, but, you know, I got to ask for you to add me on your playlist because that's the new thing now. And, you know, and let us know you've heard us and what you thought about this interview. I want to know. Yes, ma'am. Well, like I said, this has been delightful, insightful. I feel like I I just finished church. (laughs) I'm going to pull out the tambourine and do the Holy Ghost dance. Yes. And I just want you to know that you are welcome anytime to say whatever you need to say. Thank you so much for having me. And I know that, you know, for women like you, like me, yes, people need to hear us, but not don't necessarily know it. Because the ones who want to hear us are the ones who need to hear us. Are going to hear us. Amen. It may be one. It may be many. We don't know. (laughs) Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you being here. And thank you for sharing all of your stories. And God bless you on every step that you make from here into eternity. And thank you for coming on the Black Women Amplified podcast. 
Thank you for having your podcast and thank you for inviting me and God bless you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining. Uh